Welcome to The Church is the World, Chapter 2, Episode 17, the sixth and last episode on the Sumerians. Last week, I covered the third dynasty of Ur up to its collapse with the invasion of the Elamites and the ascending influence of the Amorites. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm wrapping up the Sumerians with a look into their culture, government, and military. So let's get started. The Sumerian civilization was among the oldest urban civilizations on the planet. In Sumer, the first attempts at writing emerged to produce ancient cuneiform, a form of administrative language written as wedge strokes on clay tablets. And in ancient Sumer, the first detailed records written or carved in stone of military battles appeared. The cities of Sumer, first evident in about 4000 BC, provide the world's first examples of true urban centers of considerable size. In these early cities, especially in Eridu and Uruk, people first displayed the high degree of cooperative effort necessary to make urban life possible. Both cities reflected the evidence of this cooperation in the dikes, walls, irrigation canals, and temples, which date from the 4th millennium BC. An efficient agriculture system made it possible to free large numbers of people from the land, and the cities of ancient Sumer produced social structures comprised largely of freemen who met to govern themselves. The early Sumerian cities were characterized by a high degree of social and economic diversity, which gave rise to artisans, merchants, priests, bureaucrats, and, for the first time in history, professional soldiers. The Sumerian language dominated the culture of the region and was the language of the legal, administrative, and economic documents. But, albeit slowly, the influence of Akkad could be seen throughout the region. New towns that arose during the Akkadian and subsequent Third Dynasty periods were virtually all given Akkadian names. After the collapse of the Akkadian state, the city-state of Lagash again grew under its independent kings who had extensive commercial communications with distant realms. According to their records, the ruler Gudi brought cedars from the Eminus and Lebanon mountains in Syria, diorite from eastern Arabia, and copper and gold from central and southern Arabia. This era was especially notable for artistic development, some of which survives to this day. At this time, and according to one estimate, Lagash was the largest city in the ancient world. Soon after the time of Gudia, Lagash was absorbed into the third dynasty of Ur as one of its prime provinces. The detailed documents from the administration of the third dynasty period exhibit a startling amount of centralization. The third dynasty kings oversaw many substantial state-run projects, including urban building projects, intricate irrigation systems, and the centralization of agriculture. Also, trading was a large industry. The state employed independent merchants to run such commercial activities through a barter system and established a standard system of weights. Later, coins made of copper, bronze, gold, or silver were produced in certain preset weights, so merchants could easily discern values. Textiles were a particularly important industry during the Akkadian Empire. Like most major endeavors of the time, the textile industry was run by the state. Many men, women, and even children were employed to produce wool and linen clothing. The detailed documents from the administration of this period exhibit a surprising degree of centralization. Some researchers believe that no other period in Mesopotamian history reached the same level. Researchers have many different views concerning the social structure of Sumer. It was long thought that the common laborer, a group that was the majority of the population, was nothing more than a serf. 
but new analysis and recently deciphered documents reveal a possibly different picture. Gangs of laborers can be divided into various social strata. Certain groups did seem to work under compulsion. Others worked in order to keep property or to get rations from the state. Still other laborers were free men and women, for whom social mobility was at least somewhat possible. Many families lived nomadically in search of employment. Such laborers could amass private property and even be promoted to higher positions. This is quite a different picture of the laborer's life than the previous belief that they were afforded no way to move out of the social group into which they were born. But slaves also made up a crucial group of labor for the state. One researcher estimates that up to 40% of the slaves mentioned in the surviving documents were not born slaves, but became slaves due to accumulating debt, being sold by family members, or other reasons. The whole being sold by family member thing seems like a family I would want to have nothing to do with. However, one surprising feature of this period is that slaves seem to have been able to accumulate some assets and even property during their lifetimes, such that they could buy their freedom. This belief is supported by surviving documents that give details about specific deals for slaves' freedoms negotiated with slave owners. But the documents do not show how often this actually occurred. The Third Dynasty was also a period where literature grew. Some scholars believe that the Uruk Epic of Gilgamesh was written down during this period into its classic Sumerian form. The kings of the Third Dynasty attempted to establish ties to the earlier kings of Uruk by claiming to be their descendants. Remember the king list? If you don't, just go back a few episodes. For example, the Third Dynasty kings often claim Gilgamesh's divine parents, Ninsun and Lugobanda, as their own parents, or at least somewhere back in their lineage, probably to evoke a comparison to the epic hero. During the Third Dynasty, the Sumerian language dominated the cultural sphere and was the language of legal, administrative, and economic documents. Sumerian texts were essentially mass-produced in the period, and, although the Semitic Akkadian language slowly became the common spoken language, Sumerian continued to dominate literature and also administrative documents. This may have been perpetuated because government officials learned to write at special schools that used only the Sumerian language. Intellectual life at the time of the Third Dynasty was probably active in the cultivation and transmission of older literature, as well as in the creation of new literature. Although its importance as a spoken tongue was slowly diminishing, Sumerian still flourished as a written language, a condition that continued into the Old Babylonian period. In terms of ethnicities, Mesopotamia was as much a melting pot at the end of the third millennium as it had been earlier. The Akkadians were a budding force, and the number of Akkadian speakers grew while the Sumerians shrank. A third group, first mentioned under Shar Kalishari of Akkad, were the Amorites. In the Third Dynasty, Some Amorites had worked their way up to the higher levels of the government, but most of them still led a nomadic life. A fourth distinct ethnic group were the Hurrians, who were especially important in northern Mesopotamia and in the vicinity of the modern northern Iraqi city of Kirkuk. It is thought that the geographic size of the Third Dynasty was about the same as the Akkadian Empire, stretching from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. Surprisingly, there is no evidence of any relations with Egypt either in the Third Dynasty or in the Old Babylonian period. It seems odd that no context existed at the end of the Third Millennium between the two great civilizations of the ancient Middle East. 
Historians virtually agree that the Third Dynasty was a strongly centralized state marked by the king's position as an absolute ruler. The highest state official reporting directly to the king during the Third Dynasty was the Shuk Kamal, literally translated to mean the Supreme Courier, whose position may be better described as a state chancellor. The empire was divided into about 40 provinces, each ruled by a local leader who was empowered by both civil and judicial authority. Think of these guys as the local governor. These governors all reported to the Shakalmah and served at his discretion, but occasionally the office was handed down from father to son. Their power was somewhat limited as they could not enter into alliances or wage wars on their own. But in certain tumultuous regions, military commanders assumed more power in governing. The governors were appointed by the king and could likely also be transferred by him to other provinces. But this is speculative. Each of these provinces was obliged to pay a yearly tribute, the amount of which was negotiated by emissaries. Of special significance in this was a system generally translated as a cycle or rotation, in which the governors of the southern provinces took part. Among other things, they had to keep the state stockyards supplied with sacrificial animals. Although the province often corresponded to a former city-state, Many others were newly established. The so-called Land Register text of Ur-Nammu describes four such provinces north of Nippur, giving the precise boundaries. Each province contained what is probably best thought of as a collection center where provincial taxes, called Bala, will all go to be shipped to the capital. Taxes could be paid in various forms, from crops to livestock to land. But of course, the land couldn't have been shipped to the capital but most certainly the crops and livestocks would be. The government would then apportion out goods as needed, giving food rations to the needy, funding the government, and also funding temples, not to forget supporting the defense of the area. Finally, I get to cover one of the more interesting aspects of the history of this region and time, and that is of the military. Little is known about the military organization of Sumer in the 3rd millennium B.C., but we can judge from the tablets of Shurapak, dated to around 2600 BC, that the typical city-state comprised about 1,800 square miles, roughly 4,700 square kilometers, including all of its fields and lands. In this region and at that time, it is estimated that such an area could sustain a population between 30 and 35,000 people. The tablets record a force of between 600 and 700 soldiers serving as the king's bodyguard, essentially a professional army. Given the size and structure of the society, a population of this size could support an army of regular and reserve forces, numbering between 4,000 and 5,000 soldiers. With the tradition of an essentially conscripted labor force to maintain the dikes and temples, it's not a large leap to think that the same conscription could have been used to field an army. But it is thought that the military confrontations of the era may not have required very large armies. After all, when an army is formed, it does not only require men, but also weapons, armor, food, and other supplies. Drafted troops would not usually be capable of the training and discipline necessary to wage war, and therefore they were not very effective. If they were used, they were likely armed with some rudimentary weapon or utilized in a support or logistics role. On the other hand, by 2400 BC, the Sumerian kings had largely turned their religious functions over to a professional priest and at the same time increased their civil functions and control. The kings essentially became the undisputed controllers of government resources. Moreover, 
It is simply not reasonable to expect that a society that organized well enough to control the Tigris and Euphrates rivers with an intricate system of dikes, canals, and bridges, and maintained a sophisticated system of irrigation would, leave the defense of such an investment to an unprofessional bunch of conscripts. The defense of the land was probably one of the more important roles of the king. I have been told that this statement is the result of my viewing history through my modern lens, but at the same time, history shows that, as unfortunate as it is, violence tends to win control of land. This was as true with the Sumerians as it is today. The period was marked by almost constant wars among the major city-states and against foreign enemies. Although the more frequent conflicts owing primarily to proximity was with the southern city-states of Elam, located in present-day Iran. The conflict between the Sumerians and Elamites likely extended back for thousands of years, but the first recorded instance of war between them appeared in 2700 BC, where Emma Bargassi, the first king on the Sumerian king list, undertook a war against the Elamites and, quote, carried away as spoil the weapons of Elam, end quote. Ironically, this same geographic region would be fought over for the next many thousands of years, even into the 1980s AD, between Saddam Hussein of Iraq and the Ayatollah of Iran. No society of the Bronze Age was more advanced in the design and application of military weaponry and technique than was ancient Sumer. The almost constant occurrence of war among the city-states of Sumer for 2,000 years spurred the development of military technologies and techniques far beyond that found anywhere else in the world at the time. The first war for which there is any detailed evidence occurred between the states of Lagash and Uma in 2525 BC. In this conflict, Ientunum of Lagash defeated the king of Uma. The importance of this war to the military historian can be seen in a commemorative monolith, usually referred to as a steel, which Ientunum erected to celebrate his victory. A few fragments of this monument survive today, and I'll post photos of them on the podcast's Facebook page. It was dubbed the Steel of Vultures by archaeologists, owing its name to the portrayal of birds of prey and lions tearing at the corpses of the defeated dead as they lay on the desert floor. As a note, there are no native lions in the region today. Some researchers theorize that the lions were perhaps Barbary lions, now extinct, a grand species larger than the African lions of today. But, as far as we can tell, these lions lived in North Africa, far west of Egypt. Now remember that other researchers think that the Sumerians had no contact with the Egyptians. So how did they know what these lions looked like? It doesn't seem that they both could be correct, but back to the monument. The steel represents the first important pictorial of war in the Sumerian period. The steel of vultures portrays the king of Lagash leading an infantry column of armored, helmeted warriors armed with spears, trampling their enemies. The king himself is armed with an axe, rides a chariot drawn by four donkeys. In a lower panel, Ientuam holds a sickle sword. The still also demonstrates that the Sumerian troops fought in what is generally referred to as a phalanx formation, organized into a square, six rows deep, and eight soldiers across. A similar formation was used in ancient Greece. But fighting in a phalanx requires training and discipline, and this monument implies that the men in this battle were either well-trained or perhaps professional soldiers. The typical armies of the era were men brought together to meet a temporary crisis. These temporary armies were found, for example, in Egypt during the period of the Old Dynasty, which existed at about the same time. 
Some of the knowledge concerning this organization is known from the instructions Ashura Pack, dated to around 2600 BC. These were found on clay tablets in the region. Even at this early date, the kings of the city-states provided for the maintenance of 600 to 700 soldiers on a full-time basis. This provision of military equipment for the soldiers was borne by the king, but of course he got his money, one way or another, from the people. Previously, and especially with the amateur armies, the individual soldiers were responsible for providing their own gear and weapons. Overall, this still provides the first evidence in human history of a standing professional army. The first historical evidence of soldiers wearing helmets is also provided on the steel. Also, from the bodies of the soldiers found in the death pits of Ur that dates to around 2500 BC, we know that these helmets were made of copper, and most likely had a leather liner or cap underneath. As an aside, these so-called death pits were uncovered by Leonard Woolley, who I covered a few episodes ago. The appearance of the helmet marks the first defensive response to the killing power of the mace, a significant offensive weapon of the period, and probably the oldest effective weapon of war. It was an extremely brutal weapon against a soldier with no protection for the head. But in Sumer, the presence of a well-crafted helmet indicated a major development to military technology that was so effective that it likely drove the mace from the battlefield, at least for a time. The first military application of the wheel is also known from the steel. It shows Ian to him riding in a chariot. The Sumerians also invented the wheeled cart, which became the standard vehicle for logistical transport in the Middle East until the time of Alexander the Great. The Sumerian invention of the chariot ranks among the major military innovations in history. The Sumerian chariot was usually a four-wheeled vehicle, but there were also two-wheeled varieties shown in other records. The four-wheeled version required four donkeys to pull it. Some sources claim they were onagers, a type of wild donkey, but these are notoriously hard to tame. The Sumerians are also credited with inventing the rain ring for use with the chariot in order to give the driver some control over the donkeys. There is a belief, despite what the steel shows, that at this early stage of development, the chariot was probably not a major offensive weapon because of its size, weight, and instability. It may not have been produced in great quantities. Later, however, in the hands of the Hyksos, Hittites, Canaanites, Egyptians, and Assyrians, the chariot became the primary striking vehicle of the later Bronze and early Iron Age armies. Chariot drivers, archers, and spearmen were to become the elite fighting force of the ancient world. The lower portion of the steel of vultures shows the king holding a sickle sword. The sickle sword was the primary infantry weapon of the Egyptian and biblical armies at a much later date. When the Bible speaks of people's being smoted, or in some locations it's rendered in the present tense as smite, the reference is probably to the sickle sword. Now, granted, many of the approximately 130 times the word smite is used in the Bible, it's figurative, but in many instances it is not. For a weapon to take on a figurative sense, you know it had to be an effective implement. I'll post a photo of the sickle sword on the Facebook page. The fact that the sickle sword appears on two independent renderings of the same period suggests strongly that the Sumerians invented this important weapon sometime around 2500 BC. The steel also shows Ian Tum's soldiers wearing what appeared to be armored cloaks. Each cloak was secured around the neck and was made either of cloth or, more likely, thin leather. Metal discs with raised centers or spines were sewn into the cloak. Although somewhat primitive in application, the cloak was the first representation of body armor. 
this would have afforded decent protection against the weapons of the period. Later, the Sumerians introduced overlapping plate body armor. Other Sumerian archaeological finds show additional examples of important military innovations. A carved conch plate shows the king of Ur armed with what is called a socket axe. The development of the bronze socket axe is viewed as another one of Sumer's major military innovations, one that conferred a significant military advantage. Ancient axe makers had difficulty attaching the axe blade to the wooden shaft that made up the handle with sufficient strength to allow it to remain attached when striking a heavy blow. The use of a cast bronze socket, which slipped over the head of the shaft and could be secured with a form of a rivet, permitted a stronger attachment of the blade to the shaft itself. It is likely that the need for a stronger axe arose in response to the development of some type of body armor that made the cutting axe less effective as a military instrument. Later Sumerian axes worked with an improved design. The most significant change was the narrowing of the blade so as to reduce the impact area and bring the blade to more of a point. The development marks the beginning of the penetrating axe, whose narrow blade and strong socket made it capable of piercing bronze plate armor. The result was a weapon that remained in use for nearly 2,000 years. If you're like me, and who knows, I may be the only person who is like me. But I was wondering why such development occurred in Sumer, and not in other societies, such as Egypt. In the ancient world, military technology arose in response to experiences on the battlefield. In Sumer, the 2,000 or so years of war among the city-states provided ample opportunity for innovation. Other countries, such as Egypt, were isolated from major enemies by geography and culture. Specifically, Egypt had the Mediterranean to the north, the Sahara to the south and west, and the Sinai to the east. As such, there was little need to innovate military technologies faster than their enemies. The weapons of Egypt, as a result, remained far behind the developments in Sumer. This was because they were adequate to the task at hand. In other words, the status quo was good enough to win, as infrequent as need be. There was no requirement to develop body armor, the helmet, or the penetrating axe when one's enemies did not possess this technology. The period following Ian Tum's death was characterized by more war, a situation that led to a relatively even development of weapons technology throughout the city-states of Sumer. It was probably as simple as one city-state seeing armor or a chariot or a sickle sword for the first time and having their own within a few days, weeks, or years. 200 years after Ientuam, King Lugozagasi of Umas succeeded in establishing his influence over all Sumer, although there is no evidence that he introduced any significant changes. 24 years later, the empire of Lugozagasi was destroyed by the forces of a Semitic prince from the northern city of Akit. The Sumerians and Akkadians are believed to have had the most sophisticated armies of the Bronze Age. As I covered a few episodes ago, in 2300 BC, Sargon the Great of Akkad launched a campaign of military conquest that united all of Mesopotamia. Within a decade, Sargon had extended his conquests from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea and northeastward to the Taurus Mountains of Turkey. Sargon is believed to have ruled over the first military dictatorship in world history. Through military force, he conquered all of the Sumerian states, the entire Tigris-Euphrates Basin, and brought into being an empire that stretched far and wide. Sargon united both halves of Mesopotamia for the first time since about 4000 BC. As with most early Sumerian kings, we know very little about Sargon. 
Cuneiform records indicate that during his 50-year reign, he fought no fewer than 34 wars. One account suggests that at its height, his professional army numbered about 5,400 men. If true, then Sargon's standing army would have been the largest army up until that point in world history. But given the geographic breadth of his kingdom, such a large force isn't terribly extraordinary. Previous to his uniting of the kingdom, the various city-states did not require forces nearly as large to maintain control. It seems, at least to me, fairly obvious that Sargon's army would have been built on the backs of professional soldiers considering the generally constant state of war of his reign. While it may have started with conscription, within a short time these soldiers would have become battle-hardened veterans. Not only that, but equipping an army of that size would have necessitated a high degree of military organization to manufacture the weapons and organize the logistics of feeding and housing. During his reign, the Akkadians contributed yet another major innovation to military armament, namely the composite bow. This innovation likely occurred during the reign of Sargon's grandson, Naramsin, who ruled between 2254 and 2218 BC. Like grandfather, like son, Naramsin fought continuous wars of suppression and conquest. His victory over the Lullaby from the Zargos Mountains is memorialized in a rock sculpture that shows Naramsin armed with a composite bow. This rendering marks the first appearance of the composite bow in history and strongly suggests that it was of Akkadian origin. While the previously deployed simple bow could strike down the enemy at a range of about 50 to 100 yards, which is between 46 and 91 meters, but the arrow velocity was so low that it could not penetrate even simple armor at these ranges. The composite bow, with a pull force of two to three times that of a simple bow, could easily penetrate the leather armor of the era. It may also have been capable of penetrating the early forms of bronze armor that were emerging at this time. Even in the literal hands of minimally trained, recently conscripted archers, the composite bow could rain down a hail of arrows on enemies from twice the distance as that of a simple bow. Just as the English did when facing the Spanish Armada thousands of years later, the army equipped to such a weapon could stay just out of the range of the simple bowmen of their enemies and unleash their fury. And with that, the simple bow became obsolete. The composite bow was such a significant innovation that it remained a basic implement of war in all armies of the region for about the next 1,500 years. The armies of Sumer and Akkad represent the zenith of military development in the Bronze Age. There was no other army of the same period that could equal the Sumerians in military effectiveness and weaponry. The Sumerian civilization produced no fewer than six major new weapons and defensive systems, all of which set the standard for the other armies of the Bronze Age and Iron Ages. Conversely, the armies of Egypt were already 1,000 years old by the time of Sargon, but were technologically inferior to the Sumerians. They were to remain so until the two societies came into regular contact and the Egyptians adopted the weapons of the Sumerians, and upon doing so, they forged the next significant military force. Few armies in history have been so innovative. In my mind, the only other period that saw such a revolution in the manner in which wars were fought would be with the advent of firearms, or even more so the period between 1860 and 1960 AD that saw repeating arms, motorized battle vehicles, aircraft, and nuclear weaponry. So that's the episode for this week and the end to the Sumerians. In two weeks, I'll explore the Elamites. You really don't want to miss it. 
As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, The Church is the World, as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great two weeks.